The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... I think especially in terms of low-status communities, poverty is simply often considered a cultural attribute. Perhaps the next generation or generation after that will capture these ideas and see them through. At that point, maybe there will be no choice but to do that. That is what's going to make somebody feel more comfortable, and you know when you feel it. You know when you don't feel it, too. We wrap up conference season on The Urbanist with our final stop taking us to Italy for the sixth Utopian Hours Festival. The event has always called Turin home, so we want to discover why this historic Italian city is so ripe for the picking when it comes to exciting ideas in urbanism. And on the way to finding that out, we also spoke to some of the inspiring guests in attendance, to hear more about their work in championing urban innovation and building better communities to live in. That's all ahead on The Urbanist. And now I'm going to hand you over to our guide for this episode, Monocle's David Stevens. I'm standing on a hill overlooking Italy's old capital city of Turin, and I'm wondering why. Not as in why would I visit, The city by the River Po is a beautiful grand old metropolis full of culture and life. It's also the setting for Utopian Hours, an annual festival run in Turin by Stratosferica, which explores exciting ideas in urbanism, and which is the real reason I find myself in this spot. But the real question I'm contemplating is, why here? Why is this the perfect place to be having a discussion about how to make a better city? As I head back down into the centre this afternoon to begin three days of exciting discussions at La Centrale Nuvola Lavazza, I'm hoping to gather not only some exciting conversations to share with you, the listener, but also some examples of the way that Turin itself is putting those words into action. One immediately noticeable feature of this cityscape is the interaction that this historic and largely concrete city has with its green spaces. The famous Lingotto factory, once home to Fiat automobiles, saw an extensive urban garden sprout up on its rooftop test track last year. There's also exciting projects blending urban and natural life such as Venticinque Verde, an apartment complex in the heart of the city located inside a real habitable forest. I'm Scott Francisco. I'm the founder of Pilot Projects Design Collective, uh, based in Montreal, and a co-founder of the Cities for Forests International Network of Cities Committing to Forest Positive Activities. 
Scott's work looks at the way three types of forests interact with our cities. Inner forests, nearby forests, and far away forests. Scott told me about a program he's facilitating that helps contextualize those far away forests for everyday city dwellers. And this is called the Partner Forest Program. And so in addition to working with the inner and nearby forests, we're encouraging cities to think about their climate action plans and other commitments they may have to biodiversity and, and even social equity globally, where these faraway forests can be huge contributors to those goals. So if you have a climate action plan, you're looking to become climate neutral as a city, these tropical forests and how we engage with them can offer big benefits to those plans. So the Partner Forest Program starts with the idea of making a very tangible link through some kind of product or exchange where it's considered mutually beneficial. Partner Forest would be, hey, what about our municipal coffee procurement? What about the wood we're using for this boardwalk or these benches? So these are just sort of some initial ideas. These are tropical forest products, and all of them could be directed towards supporting the conservation, long-term conservation of a forest. How do you think Turin is doing? I mean, you've had involvement with Turin before with your organization, but how do you think the place where we find ourselves, where we're having this conversation, is dealing with the idea of connecting to green space? Well, there's the green space in the city, the inner forest, and I think Turin has a, well, there's some great examples. There's also some examples that have been brought to my attention by the local leaders that have room for improvement, like the regional forest hillsides have not been managed apparently very well over the last couple of decades. And so there's, they're looking for ways to really engage and improve those forest practices. But it's a pretty green city in many respects. But I think that's still missing the point, because when you look at this the built environment, it's mostly a concrete and steel environment with a huge carbon footprint. The majority of the food like any city in the world, is coming from faraway places, farms around the world, including farms that are in tropical areas. And so when you put on your sort of x-ray goggles and you look at a city, how it's being sustained, it's pulling resources from all over the world. And that's almost exclusively negative on the environments that they're pulling from because they're extracting resources. Now we're starting to understand how we can flip that around. It's not easy to do. But, you know, things like community-supported agriculture programs where you're shifting your food consumption to local farms where there's a stronger identity and better connection to the landscape. That's one way you can do it. We want to go even further and say, where can we invest in those faraway forests? We're seeing a lot more of a push towards timber being used in construction in, in cities. How do we make sure that if we are going to really promote and grow the use of timber, that it stays truly sustainable using that much timber. We can't just take it for granted that wood is always a sustainable choice. But I would say with quite a a long history of working in this area that there is a huge amount of sustainably produced wood available today. We're trying to grow that capacity, that supply side certification is one step. So if wood is coming from a certified forest management source, that's raised the standards considerably. And the certification is indicating sustainable management and harvesting. We'd like to go beyond that because certification isn't perfect. We like to go to the level of the community benefits. And so we've created a system, we call it a platform, Sustainable Wood for Cities. And it's a way for cities to evaluate any kind of wood that they're using and look at it through the lens of these pathways for sustainability that include reuse of wood, local urban wood, social forestry, and some of these other characteristics, as well as net carbon accounting. 
Hi, I'm Majora Carter. I'm an urban revitalization strategist and also a real estate developer. And much of our work really focuses on manifesting the talent retention approach to community development, which is all about recognizing the people in communities, in particular the ones we call low status communities, which doesn't mean that we think they're like worse than anybody else, but it's more about how inequality is assumed and how it happens in those communities in terms of the development that you see there, which has an impact on the social and environmental and economic issues that those communities deal with. Much of Majora's work began with supporting communities' efforts to green their public spaces. But even with those nature-based beginnings, her work has always been about keeping city-making talent within low-status communities, expelling the idea that success is measured by how far away from those neighbourhoods you can end up. I asked Majora how she thought the relationship between community development and City Hall tends to play out. Really, there should be a partnership between you know, the residents within a community, especially low-status communities and our elected officials and policymakers, but there often isn't because I think especially in terms of low-status communities, poverty is simply often considered a cultural attribute. And so the way that they're developed, the way that they're perceived by our policymakers is often to that. And and so that's why you'll see lots of highly subsidized affordable housing for the lowest income bands. Like you'll see more health clinics and pharmacies as opposed to any other kind of economic development. But again, if poverty is the cultural attribute and you just know that people are sick, people need like, you know, homeless shelters and things like that, that's what you do. But what it does for the people in the community, it makes them feel like they need to measure their success by how far they get away from them. It's more about how do you, you know, create opportunities for people in low status communities to feel as though community is not just a place, but it's an activity. It's something that is the way you feel about your neighborhood that makes you want to stay invested in it. And if you don't feel invested in your community, you're not going to want to even think about partnering with your elected officials or your policymakers, because to you, it's just a stepping stone to get out. If you don't see any reason to stay invested in your neighborhood. Like you don't have cool places to hang out. You don't have, you know, housing that matches your income. You don't have the kind of social third spaces that make you feel like you can stay in your neighborhood and feel good about being in it. You'll leave. And so that's what we consider the work about. It's retaining the talent that's being really clear that we can create the kind of infrastructure, whether it's cafes or bars or cool parks, to make people feel like oh, I want to stay here. I want to stay invested here. Going back to nature, but also you talk about coffee shops and all of these things, which at certain times and certain places may look like that big, scary G word of gentrification. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure that it's for the community ultimately and remains for the community, not just for people to move in and take advantage of the development? Much of that comes in with actually doing some triage around housing, You know, in particular, what we've been seeing in the States a lot is that the number of homes that are bought not by regular people, but are bought by private equity to rent them, even though we know that the biggest path towards not only generational wealth so that your family has something to look forward to, but also community stability is home ownership. And so if we're not doing stuff like that, if we're not creating the infrastructure, which means more housing for people to buy or helping people that do own their own homes to see the value of keeping them, we've got a problem. So we really think that part of a huge portion of the work that needs to happen is us helping people to see the value of keeping their homes and not 
selling to private equity real estate firms to rent to people just like them. And then there's also a big push, I believe, towards supporting the development of more local entrepreneurial development. So those are the type of things that we have to start doing. And it's certainly what we've been working on. I think especially people in low status communities are so often believe that if they see something nice in the neighborhood, because there's often so little that's nice in our neighborhoods, that it can't be for them, which is so crazy. We've been seduced by this whole crazy idea that poverty is just like part of our culture, that anything nice must not be for us, must be building it for somebody else. So that's why I feel like we have to start building the kind of lifestyle infrastructure that we know people are attracted to and make it normal in our own neighborhoods. Because if we're not building it, then they will go and they do go. And that's part of the problem. Looking at a space from a different perspective is another strong feature of the Tiranese cityscape, be it redesigning a disused rail line into the Highline-esque Precolinia Park, or in the case of the setting for Utopian Hours Festival, turning a power plant into a multi-purpose headquarters for the Italian coffee giant Lavazza. Seeing a space anew can unlock endless possibilities. I'm Robert Stevens. I'm an architect based in Mumbai, India. And Bombay Imagined is an unbuilt history of the city uh, from 1670 to 2020, 200 unrealized visions. Robert's book explores Bombay through proposed projects that never saw the light of day. I asked Robert to describe one of his favorite unrealized plans. Probably my favorite imagination is from 1973, when Ajit Bharajarji imagines the streets of the city are transformed into public parks with single-use bus lanes. It makes the streets completely unrecognizable, completely overgrown with landscapes, walking tracks, and then this one very kind of discreet bus lane ferrying everyone as everyone was to travel by public transport. How important do you think it is to encourage these new perspectives of cities? How important do you think it is to dream about what your city could be? So it's really interesting. A lot of the dreams in the book, even if they're, say, 100 years old, 150 years old, they in many ways reflect the dreams that many are having today. You know, how does one cleanse polluted water in a holistic, in a responsible manner? So, for example, so that the oceans around the city are not polluted. And these dreams, once you realize these dreams span centuries, I think it gives them kind of a new footing that they're not just one-offs in today's age, but they're repeated. And I find that I think that encourages us today to dream for the future. Are there some ideas you think, actually, hey, this city could really use that idea that was for Bombay in their own space? Or, or maybe some that you really wish that Mumbai would pursue again, maybe pick up where it was left off? In modern day Bombay, there's still despite the direction the rest of the world's heading, there's a huge push for vehicle-based infrastructure. And that's, of course, unfortunate because that's not the holistic future you know, of cities, especially like Bombay. So there's this contingent of architects in the city that are saying, let's take these under construction projects for mechanical movement and completely reclaim them for pedestrian use, for open green spaces, and this, of course, this reflects many projects that are happening in Europe, especially at the moment. You see it in pockets of the U.S. where cars are being not welcomed and kind of the gates are opening again to people. So I think in many ways that's an encouragement and we see it. But when it's spoken of in Bombay, it's not yet catching, unfortunately. But it will. I'm confident it will. It just may not happen in our lifetime. 
are you hopeful for Bombay? I mean, do you have hope that the city will continue to thrive? Is it on the brink? Is it at risk? Is it on the way to something even better? What's your hope for so, Mumbai? So the city is definitely on the brink, although parts have fallen off the brink <laughs> recently. But I am I am an optimist at heart. You know, as I've been working on the book for the last seven years, my wife would often be like, what's wrong with you? Like, how can you see all these dreams and not feel depressed about this? And I told her, like, I actually find this hopeful. It's just this constant refreshing of ideas and people not giving up on the city. And I think we need that. Even if, again, it doesn't happen while we're living, perhaps the next generation or generation after that will capture these ideas and see them through. At that point, maybe there will be no choice but to do that. Turin is also working to ensure women's perspectives are heard when it comes to city making, with organisations such as Turin City for Women putting these efforts at the heart of their manifesto. I was lucky enough to get some time with two speakers who are also doing inspirational work and championing women's voices in the field of urban design. My name is Katrina Johnston Zimmerman. I'm an urban anthropologist. I actually work for the city of Philadelphia right now for the municipality and have a consultancy, Think Urban, uh, for some years now. So I'm an applied anthropologist and I specialize in human behavior in public spaces. Katrina is also a self-described professional people watcher. I began by asking what us amateurs could learn from the process. You too can be a professional people watcher. It just takes practice. Um, no, but in all seriousness, you know, applying this to urban planning and architecture, it's really just one step of many in the design process. And it's just about checking and seeing, you know, what is happening in that place right now? What are people doing? What's working? What's not? How are they feeling? And then as you modify that space to meet their needs, you can check again and say, okay, this is working. This isn't working, et cetera. It should be a part of the natural process, but some of my advocacy work is integrating that into it because it's not right now. It's got history as well in the field. Can you explain some of the background of people watching? Yeah, the about last hundred years have been car centric for our cities. And it really has shaped, as we know, the way that cities are formed and the way that it impacts people's lives. It's much less human centered. Right. So in the last 50, 60 years with William H. Holly White and Jane Jacobs as two key pioneers, we have started to stop and look and listen and think more and really actually reimagine the city as a habitat rather than something like an efficient machine or just a place of transportation and, you know, living or working and whatever, you know, it's a lot more holistic now, better public spaces, more quality of life. And also it's about equality. It's about equity. And that gets to gender equity as well right now. So it's about who's watching, not just who you're watching. So maybe you could explain what are some of the ways that we don't realize cities aren't designed for women and girls? So the most easy example um, that most people bring up immediately is safety. So women, in terms of safety in a city, it's just a constant thought process that we have that a lot of my male friends and colleagues and counterparts don't have. So it's just the standard, you know, for us and your experience is different and that's okay. So we have to talk about that. We have to really think more critically about it. And by having more people behind the design, like women, like non-binary individuals, like LGBTQ+, non-able-bodied, you know, a wider diversity of people means we're going to have a better outcome for everyone. 
If we all feel that we have an ownership over public space, we feel like we belong, then you don't even have to think about it. So if you live in a place where that is your situation, you know, that's not for a lot of people, but we need to get to that point. So whatever we can do to give agency, to co-create the built environment with more people from the ground up, listening to the community as the expert, that is what's going to make somebody feel more comfortable. And you know when you feel it, you know when you don't feel it too. I suppose if there's a blind spot, putting the same person in charge, they're still going to have that same blind spot. So it's also about making sure that there's representation across the board, I suppose. So how do you ensure that representation? It's tough. I mean, the simple answer is we'll vote for the right people, but it's not quite that simple, is it? No, and I think we can start by acknowledging where we come from on the subject, right? So just knowing your own bias. We all have it. We all have our experiences. A lot of it we can't control, right? We're sort of just born into these bodies in this world. You know, there's nothing wrong. But the ways in which we can acknowledge where we come from and when we enter a space and then think about people different from us is a great place to start. The next part would be getting those people that are different than us into those positions of authority, into leadership, you know, involving them in the board and making sure that we're listening to their voices at the very least. I am Kensani Yurchok de Clark. I am an educated architect and city planner, but I really I consider myself to be a multidisciplinary artist. I run and founded a collective called Matri Architecture since 2017. And Matri Architecture is really an intersectional collective that is aimed at thinking about non-institutional spatial education, particularly from an African perspective. And so we're based between Switzerland and South Africa. And it's really important all of our members in the collective are also thinking about this notion of the role that spatial practice has in telling stories about space. And my main sort of research focus is thinking about safe space. What do we think about safe space in spatial terms, particularly when reflecting on it, thinking about it, manifesting it? And that's really a spatial question. I asked Kinsani how she would define that often misunderstood and sometimes even weaponized concept of safe space. Safe space has been researched and explored at length in the sociological sciences, right? And I speak to you with a black feminist lens that is an intersectional lens that is thinking about different ways of experiencing the city from a lens that tends to be overlooked. And so when we're thinking about safe space, we're thinking about the work of Patricia Hill Collins, we're thinking about the work of Bell Hooks, Margin and Center, we're thinking about the work of architects, Ilza Wolf, we're thinking about many people. And when I think about safe space in spatial terms, I can use three terms to define the qualities of what one could expect in a city when thinking about safe space. Scale matters. So this ability to have the freedom to choose have the freedom to ponder and have the freedom to pause when moving through the city. Ability is a huge word because all bodies are so different, culturally different, physically different, and the reactions are always different. So they all call for very, very careful and sensitive mapping and understanding. But with these three characteristics in mind, I find it very helpful to explore cities and understand how to listen to them, really. Ponder, choose, and pause. I also got the unique chance to get an entirely otherworldly perspective on cities when I spent some time speaking with a truly interplanetary designer. 
Hi, my name is Vera Mulyani. I am the chief architect for Mars City Design. Vera's work looks at how we could build livable cities in extreme environments outside the planet we call home. But many of the prototypes are being tested in the extremes of our own planet. So how much could we be learning from this work about how to build cities while still here on Earth? We are creating this platform as a feedback loop between what we dream to create for Mars and what is the reality of the technology that we have here on Earth at the moment, meaning we actually really depend on a lot of power and money who will decide when humans are actually going to Mars. So it's so important in the process of getting there, getting out of the box of what we are capable to do today, and then we're able to create some innovations out of it. So the idea of having a prototype on Earth is really to show that it's possible. Yes, of course, it's on Earth, but it will teach us as well things that could solve some of the problems here on Earth because without something like Mars, without something that is beyond our ordinary, it's hard for us to observe back what we're facing as issues today that could be solved. Sometimes it's a click of idea. Do you have any kind of examples of maybe things that you've worked on in this project that have already been implemented in places on this planet or maybe that you think might be needed very, very soon? Yeah, so for so long we have been doing some research in the human Mars habitat and I think uh, we've been very successful just creating a sort of theory how the basic structure would respond to the environment that is extreme on Mars in different locations Just like on Earth, you know, we have different climates depending on geographic position. Mars is the same, so we wouldn't build something for tropical place like Bali or Hawaii in Alaska, right? So we have different responses depending on different geography that we think it might be interesting for humans to have a base. But all of that stays as design because we realize that, well, of course, it kind of advances also like technologies like 3D printing and local mining for materials. And then the ones that we're working on as concrete product today is a shift towards uh, health. What we are doing today with Mars City Design is we collaborate with a Japanese company who are producing the potent supplement that actually is made of extremophile, a bacteria that will help us to modulate our microbiome in the body that we can be trained to become stronger. So it's internally biohacked so we can adapt to any harsh conditions even on Earth. Chirin's Piazza San Carlo and its surrounding arcades and archways form one of the largest continuous pedestrian areas in Europe. The area was formed centuries ago, but keeping it car-free in a city with such a history of automobiles is an admirable act and a nod to other cities that cutting out cars is well within the realm of possibility. I'm Nina, Nina Noble, and I'm from Berlin. And years ago, I started 
the initiative of Berlin Car Free because as an urban planner, I was always thinking about how I want the city to be. And as a cyclist, I always yeah, had a problem to uh, move in the streets. And yeah, I was really ready to change something. So this initiative was just the spark to get something bigger started. So what is the situation like in Berlin? And why is it the perfect place to be trialing these sorts of ideas? Berlin has a very good public transport and especially in the center of Berlin, most people are going by foot, by public transport or by bike. So the challenge is kind of to think about all those travelers from like around the city or around the city center. So I think we have to focus on expanding the public transport there. But in the inner city, it's really already pretty good situation and people are also kind of fed up by the situation with the cars and when I have a look at Berlin's public spaces or also the reclaimed spaces you can really see that people are creative with it and they have ideas and they can really appropriate them being creative about it so I'm really hoping to have this in a bigger dimension on the street. So that kind of setup for you allows some big radical ideas and the possibility for big change. Tell us how big the uh, proposal that you're hoping to put forward, tell us how big that really is. It's pretty big. I mean, the central part of Berlin is 88 square kilometers big with a million of inhabitants. That's big. And it also includes all the city you would think of when you think of Berlin. But it's also a very dense city where you have all the supermarkets very close. You can really do all your daily businesses by foot or by bike or by public transport. It's really possible. So it's still a big thing because we are thinking about really transforming all the streets there into car-reduced streets, taking priority from the cars and giving them to the people who are like moving more climate-friendly. And what to you does a almost car-free, because there's always going to be some exceptions and that's part of making sure this can actually happen is making sure that those exceptions are heard. But what does an almost car-free city look like to you and what bad things does it eliminate from the city? Yeah, for me, is it about justice, actually, because now we're really car-centered and we're not taking into account what people really need, how they want to move and what they want to do in the public space, because in the end, the whole street is public space. I think we have to reclaim it because now it's full of private cars, but it could be full of greenery, of playing grounds, of spaces where people can meet and where they can connect with their neighborhood. And I think it will bring people together and make them open also for different perspective. You have the opportunity then in the space to have a look, okay, who is exactly living in this street and what do they need? And this you can realize afterwards. And I'm really looking forward to this. And I'm really, I really want to be in the process of going into detail, being in the street and developing it, building some furniture and so on. This has got some great backing already from the signatures you've gathered. The hope is that it will eventually go to a vote. Are you hopeful for Berlin of the future? I am, for sure. I mean, I am from Berlin, so it's really my city and I really see it at another point. And I think we are really able to do this pilot thing somehow, because for sure we have other cities like Paris or Barcelona, which are also very progressive. But I think it's good to try different ways of tackling this mobility issue. And I mean, Berlin has always been creative and I'm really counting on that. So, why Turin? Well, because this city has so much going for it as a sandbox for creative urbanism. It weaves itself in with its surrounding forests and rivers, finds fresh points of view when developing and redeveloping spaces, 
encourages innovative voices no matter where they come from and acknowledges its past while blazing a trail for the future. It's no surprise that city makers from around the country and beyond are sitting up to take notice. In the words of Stratosferica's founder Luca Ballarini, Turin could be the cradle for a culture of urban innovation in Italy. It's what Torinese and Piemontese are best at. After this weekend, I'd tend to agree. For Monocle in Turin, I'm David Stevens. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's programme was produced by Carl Trebello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Leaning with Utopia. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Down on my knees, baby.